0: So we're in Exodus 35, uh, and if you remember, uh, we're kind of wrapping up. Moses is back for round two uh, after the people of Israel uh, uh completely walked away from God's covenant, his promise, uh, fashioned a golden calf out of the things that he'd given them. Coming out of Egypt, he comes down the mountain again. His face is shining because he's had this encounter with God and he begins to uh, enact the things that God had asked him to do. So for the past several chapters God has been outlining what the tabernacle should be like, the priestly garments, the role and the function of Israel. And this is literally where we get to Exodus 35. All of those things so far have been instruction. And now we get to the place where Israel is actually enacting and obeying uh, God's uh, word. And And it's interesting to me that for the fourth time in Exodus, God chooses in this moment, right before they get started again, To repeat himself again. It's a repetitious phrase that we've heard from time to time, and it probably sounds something like maybe you have in your home. You probably have uh, phrases that you repeat often, right? Uh, Maybe if we were to ask for those, it's uh, you know with maybe a person in your home. Can you clean up after yourself, right? Maybe it's for the little guys. Brush your teeth. Clean your room pick up your trash. You know, it, it might be for the older guys too, right? I don't know. You might have to repeat these phrases. And most often, if you think about these phrases, it's really not the thing that we're saying that we care about. It's not that, it's not that we have this obsession with someone brushing their teeth. It's that we want them to have good dental hygiene, right? We want them to be healthy. There's always something underneath of the instructions that we are giving. And I think like that in this chapter when God says, for the fourth time, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. There's something behind that command and that instruction that he's trying to push onto us. And especially, I think, if we look at the whole of Scripture and realize that this command is given many times in Moses and the law of Moses. And in the New Testament, it's, it's talked about, it's shadowed a little bit, but it doesn't seem to have the, the prominence that it does here. We see that there's this, there's this massive undertone of what God is trying to say. We might be clued into the fact that it's not necessarily about the Sabbath, but about something else underneath of it. And so I think as we study this passage today, we're going to look and see uh, earlier when these chapters have come up, the Sabbath and work, we've focused more on work and we've re- reserved the Sabbath uh, for this last and final time. So let's look at it together and the, the rest of the chapters, see what, what God wants to, to push on our hearts today. And so then, uh, verse 1, Then Moses assembled all of the congregation and the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you should have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. And whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. This is important. That God was explicitly clear for the third time, Uh, that not only should you observe the Sabbath, but also it comes with a very severe penalty, capital punishment. If you choose not to obey me, you will die, he says. So whoever does any work on it shall be put to death, and you should not even kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. I think probably uh, you're maybe like the Israelites at this point. Okay, okay, we get it. You want us to rest on the Sabbath. Sabbath. Okay, you know, and I think maybe um, it reiterates the punishment for not observing it. It's death, sadly enough. Uh, There's an actual account of this in Numbers chapter 15, where someone refused to obey the Sabbath. And notice what happens. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathered wood and brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregations and placed him in custody because it had not been decided what he should be done to him. So they knew that God had already said, if someone does not observe the Sabbath, he shall be put to death. But they come to Moses and Aaron and they bring him and they're like, are we going to really put this guy to death? I mean, it's it's a little bit unnerving for them, right? I mean, as it is us, we're thinking, are they really going to put this guy to death? And so they, they, they look and they said, and then the Lord said to Moses, yeah, this man shall be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord commanded. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because if we're not careful, careful we're tempted to think, what? what, the Lord commanded Israel to carry out capital punishment for gathering firewood? This is crazy. This is the harsh and smiting God that everyone in our culture detests. This doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. This seems vengeful. Who could follow a God like this? Maybe it's just me in my first reading, but I think it's really important to understand what's going on. This guy is being punished, and the lesson that Israel needs to learn from it is very important. We do the same thing in our house often. We, we've never stoned anybody. but uh, Especially when our children are younger, you know, we, we give explicit instructions. And, and we might, the instruction or the, 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 the ask might not be that big of a deal at all. It might be something like brush your teeth. Or it might be something like clean up your room before you do this. And if that instruction isn't done, and if it was clear and they made a clear choice to say, I don't want to do what you've told me to do. I want to do what you, what I want to do. Well, the infraction isn't that you didn't brush your teeth. The infraction is that you willingly chose to disobey me. So it's not about the Sabbath. It's about, do you trust me? Do you honor me as God? And when I say that this has to happen, do you look at it and say, okay, then I will submit? Or do you look at it and say, yeah, that seems a bit ridiculous to me. I'll choose my own way. And so as God is pushing in on Israel, he's saying, listen, everything I say to you, everything I say to you, whether it's about the Sabbath or false gods or idol worship or how to speak my name, every single instruction that I've given to you is so important. You have to obey me. So I think if we didn't know the context, if we didn't know that God had already spoken these things multiple times, if he didn't already say, listen, if you don't do this, you're going to be put to death. There's no way, there's no chance that this guy gathering firewood woke up one morning and it's like, oh, what day is it? I don't know. You know what? It is the Sabbath and I didn't get any firewood yesterday. God's not really good. This is, that rule is ridiculous. Ridiculous that rule is absurd. Nobody's really going to put me to death for that. And he goes out willingly, intentionally, and breaks God's law. What he was saying is, I don't really care what you've said, God. I choose me. I choose what I want. I choose what I desire. I choose my will over yours. And God says, that's not how it goes. So this nameless man breaks the law. He's well aware of the Lord's commandment and, his, and to rest. And he's violating this specific example that God has given. I think it's, it's really uh, fair also to, to remember that in this passage, literally God said, you should not even kindle a fire. I mean, this is not even a far example of what the man is doing. He's going to gather firewood to kindle a fire. He's literally breaking the one example that God gave. You can think of hundreds of examples of how not to work. And he's literally doing the one thing that God said, as an example, don't even do this. He did that. Literally, his arrogance and audacity against God is what punishes him to death. He doubted the word of God and doubted the supremacy of God, that God could tell him what to do and what not to do, that he had the right to say that. So what was at stake was this man's life and what was at stake for Israel and how they viewed God's command and his covenant. And So God was after their trust, but also he had to capture their obedience. So notice how God speaks to Moses directly after that event. Same passage, next verse, he says this, And so the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, this is Numbers 15, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they should make themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, that they shall put the tassel on each corner of violent thread, and it shall be a tassel for you to look and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so that you will do them and not follow your own heart and your own eyes that led you to prostitute yourselves so that you will remember and do all of my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So God is saying this, Moses, all right, here's what we're gonna do. Tell the people of Israel to to cut like a, a, a violet thread and place them around the corners of their garment as a reminder, maybe when they see it, they will remember, oh, oh, God has spoke about this. Do you hear God's heart here? He's like, Moses, I don't want you to break the commandments. I don't want you to walk away from what I have for you. I don't want you to decide what may be best in your eyes because all of my commandments are for your good. And so maybe when you see this, you'll remember that I have fought for you to bring you out of Egypt. God says he wants them to remember who he is and that he has the authority to tell them what he wants them to do. He also wants them to remember who they are and that their own thoughts or feelings will often be different than his. Did you catch that line? Don't follow your own heart in your own eyes. I think that's important for us, isn't it? Because most often that's, that's our guide, that's our compass, right? Right? I guess that would go against let your heart be your guide, let your conscience be your guide, follow your heart, all of those. God says, no, 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 don't do that. That's literally almost always the worst possible solution. Because I know your hearts. Your hearts are wicked. And what I'm begging you to do is to follow me in this good path that I've carved out for you. Your hearts will take you through a path of destruction, and I will take you to a path of life, he says. So I believe that there are a few reasons, but the, uh, for the Sabbath, but one was simply to exercise an obedience. It's a day. It's a day where I'm asking you to rest. Can you trust me enough to simply obey that? Right. It's like a dog who learns to sit before they stay before you walk away. This is the simplest of commands. The Sabbath is literally the simplest of commands. Don't work on the Sabbath. They don't have to to navigate their love or hate for their neighbor. They don't have to think about the false gods that they're bringing out of Egypt. This is a literally do or do not, right? It's very simple. Don't work on the Sabbath. It's a simple exercise in obedience. I'm going to ask you to trust me in a lot more complicated things later on, but for now, just don't do any work on the Sabbath. It seems very easy, and yet have to have extreme difficulty keeping this law. I think now um, you understand why the Pharisees absolutely freaked out at Jesus and his disciples as they were walking through a grain field. If you remember on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples were walking through this field. His disciples were hungry. They were picking the heads of the grain as they walked and eating them. Uh, and just a quick note, they weren't stealing either. Later from the law of Moses, he would command all landowners to leave the edges of their field ungleaned so that sojourners, passerbys, people who did not have a field of their own, could glean from this. And so they were in their rights to pick the harvest that they were doing. That It wasn't any kind of stealing or anything like that. But the Pharisees came up to Jesus uh, and they said, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you allowing your disciples to eat this? And absolutely, um, they were mortified and petrified of the law. They knew this story where someone had been put to death for not keeping the Sabbath. And so Jesus answers them in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, and he says this, and he clarifies the Sabbath for us, I think. His response is, the Sabbath was, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's the point we're going to make about the Sabbath and about the principle Here is All of God's laws are for His glory and our good. All of God's laws are for God's glory and our good. So they got it all wrong, and they're missing the bigger lesson that God wanted to teach them and just made his words all about the rules. Later, later Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees because they were like whitewashed tombs on the outside, clean, and, uh, the appearance was bright, yet on the inside full of decay. Uh, it reminds me of a story surrounding the Sabbath that I read a while back. In 2013, uh, New York City Police Department raided a drug a den in Brooklyn and the police found a crew of five men in possession of 23,000 pills of oxycodone uh, and a street value of uh, almost a half million dollars back then. Uh, apparently, the men had used uh, stolen prescription sheets to obtain the drugs, and they were also accused of peddling heroin, cocaine, and possessing uh, some illegal firearms as well. And so, but there was an interesting twist to the story that, that made me remember this, and that that's they routinely texted their customers uh, when they were closed for the Sabbath. One text read that they cited this in court. This is a literal text from this warehouse of guys selling drugs, right? He says this. He says, we're closing at 7.30 on the dot, and we are, we'll reopen at 8.15 on Sunday. So if you need anything, you have 45 minutes to get what you want. Now, that explains why the police officers dubbed their year-long investigation only after Sunday, right? It's almost ridiculous that what our hearts and our minds, the mental and spiritual gymnastics we can do sometimes to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm following God. Right, like they're so concerned about just the Sabbath. Like, let me, let me, me, let me focus on the rule, the dot, the T, all the things, and this is what the Pharisees were doing. Not only that, were—they were, they were, their hearts, Jesus said, your hearts are so far from me. Your words say you love God, and yet your hearts are full of destruction. You're saying, let's observe the Sabbath. You're selling drugs to people. What they were doing is they were trying to pretend on the outside that they had it all together. And they were also creating all kinds of rules around the rules so that they wouldn't break them. Some of the rules on the Sabbath, uh, th- things that God did not say. These are all Jewish laws about the Sabbath that God never said. Uh, you can't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home on the Sabbath. Uh, you can't carry an object that weighed more than a dried fig. You could eat nothing larger than an olive you could throw nothing in the air with one hand and catch it with the other. Uh, nothing could be bought or sold. Nothing could be washed or dried. A letter could not be sent. A fire could not be lit or extinguished. Uh, you couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath because if you did and spilled some water onto the floor that might be cons- and you cleaned it up, that might be considered cleaning your floor Uh, A woman could not look into a a mirror because she might see gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. A Jewish tailor could not carry a needle on the Sabbath, lest he be tempted uh, to mend a torn garment. It was against the law to tie a knot or untie a knot. If you were injured on the Sabbath, it was only lawful to save a life. Barely. And then we can get to you tomorrow. These are just a small sample of the thousands of senseless, foolish, man-made rules that the Jews were forced to live by. The Sabbath, as a result, was filled with this burdensome ritual and no rest at all. But they were whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside, completely corrupted on the inside. They missed that the Sabbath was for their good in God's glory. When it's for their good, and God's glory, it changes how we look at this. So what does the Sabbath mean for us today? What is it about? What does it still matter? I, I, I think of the Sabbath or the idea, the principle of the Sabbath beneath the remember the Sabbath and keep it holy commandments all throughout scripture. I think there's a principle beneath that. And I, I kind of put them in, in a, a few categories. The first is rest. That the Sabbath literally means rest, to cease, inactivity. And it was first observed by God in Genesis chapter 2, when he had finished creation. He ceased from his work. So the Sabbath was given to man out of the grace of God, that God would, would give man one day out of seven, in which he does not have to work. This was important for the people of Israel who came out of a life, generations, 400 years of slavery. This was a gift to them. So it's a a principle of rest, that we would rest and we would trust God with the minutes that we are resting. But also that we would remember Notice one of the times that that the Lord gives this command, he says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy for six days, you shall labor and do your work. But on the seventh, it's a Sabbath day to the Lord, your God, and on it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male slave, your female slave, your cattle, your resident who stays with you, everyone, he says. And then he says this, and he draws a conclusion and a reason why, why? Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So there's this element of when we stop and rest, we remember that God stopped and rest after he created the entire world. It's a chain of events that leads us to this remembering and this posture that, oh, You're God and I'm not. You created the entire world and I didn't. It forces us to remember that he is God. But also scripture tells us that the Sabbath was a shadow of Christ and the rest that he brings our souls. Notice this in, in Colossians verse, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, he says, This, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Things that are which only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's a shadow of what's to come, he says. And once the shadow has been uh, given to us, the real thing has been given to us, there's no need for the shadow anymore. I think it's really important to understand that this is the only commandment of the 10 that's not reiterated in the New Testament. This is the only commandment of the 10 commandments that's not reiterated in the New Testament that we should do this, but that doesn't mean that the principle behind it is not wise or something that we should still practice in the rhythms of our life. Although observing a Sabbath isn't something that we're commanded to do, remembering the faithfulness of God and trusting him is over and over and over and over and over again. The commandment to remember God's faithfulness is given to us in a way that we cannot escape it. So what does that look like for you? What does it look like to work to the glory of God throughout the week and trust him with whatever is left? to work hard, to be tired when you go to bed. And for a day or for a moment for you to stop and say, you know what, I could accomplish more. I could gain one more step on the ladder. I could gain one more accolade, one more trophy, one more reward. But instead of trying to pursue a greater name for myself, I'm going to step back and remember the great name that God has given us. What does it look like to disengage from what you do every day, to disrupt the rhythm and intentionally look to God in ways to deepen your faith? The Sabbath was never about a vacation day. The Sabbath was never about a vacation day. It was about remembering, resting, reflecting and trusting God. And here's the case that I would make, that there's not a death penalty for gathering firewood, but if we don't take the time uh, to reflect on God's goodness, His faithfulness, His long-suffering, His patience, then we will probably choose to live our life in a way, in obedience to our own ways, which will lead to the decay of our souls. We might get away with gathering firewood. Uh, To be honest, I I think, you know, putting a fire on your patio or in back porch or something like that, I think in some ways, for a lot of us, would be very restful and reflective. But when we don't choose to intentionally engage in resting, remembering, reflecting, our souls will decay. In this passage, I think God clearly is after the trust of Israel, not only with the Sabbath, and the time that he's giving them, but also with the resources that he has given them. So notice as we continue back to Exodus 35, verse 4, so Moses takes up after the Sabbath, he says, and so he speaks to the congregation of the sons of Israel, and he reminds them, this is the thing that the Lord commanded, saying, take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart, is to bring it as the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, violet, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, fine leather, uh, acacia wood. You know what? Somebody pointed out that I've said Acadia wood uh, for the entire Exodus journey. And that's probably true. Uh, I think and dream of a time where I go and visit Acadia. Uh, But this is not it, okay? Acacia wood. So I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And oil for lighting. And the spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the onyx stones and the setting stones and the ephod uh, and for the breast piece. And so this particular passage is interesting to me because he says two things that seem to go against each other. One, this is what the Lord has commanded and anyone who has a willing heart. It's, it's just odd to me that the that God is commanding. He's literally commanding the building of the tabernacle. He's commanding Israel to do it. And then he says, and then here's how I want you to do it, Moses. I want you to go to Israel and I want you to say, and anyone whose heart is willing and whose heart is moved, that's how I'm going to accomplish my command. Isn't that interesting? That the God who's commanding the... the the tabernacle to be built does not command the people to give towards it. Now, we, we've seen before in Exodus, there's a, there's a very small tabernacle or temple tax. It's very, very small. That was universal over the poor and the rich. And he said, it doesn't matter if you're poor or wealthy, you give this amount. This is different. And he invites them in to something that he's doing. This is different than the tithe. Later on, Moses will establish this 10% tithe that we know of, uh, given to the priest. What's needed for the construction of the tabernacle was not required. This is different. This is what they would consider a free will offering. And it was if their hearts moved them. Notice I I put a a few passages uh, that, that come from this chapter Notice how many times God repeats this uh, qualification for forgiving. Verse 5, Take from among you the contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart is to bring the Lord's contribution. Verse 21, And everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution from the work of the tent of the meeting for all of its service and for the holy garments. Verse 22, Again, Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and articles of gold. So did everyone who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Verse twenty. And everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the contribution, to the Lord's contribution. 26, And all the women whose heart stirred them with a skill upon the goat's hair. Verse 29, And the Israelites, all the men, the women, whose heart moved them to bring material for the work which the Lord had commanded, again, through Moses to be done, brought a voluntarily offering to the Lord. Over and over and over and over again, the Lord is clear. He's trying to say something to us. Right? He's saying... Your hearts will be moved towards what I am doing. I love this about God. That the Lord allows us and invites us into the kingdom work that He is doing. Think about this for a second. The Lord allows us, not just allows like Yeah, I I um I've coached the little league for for many years. And the rule about Little League is everybody has to play. Everybody has to play. If you're on the team, okay. And there's moments where you just, as a coach, you're like, oh, man. Let's just, we'll just go out into the field. Because honestly, when this kid gets up to bat, there's zero chance. The only way he's getting on base is if he gets hit by pitch. I mean, I've given my life to help correct this swing. It, there's just, it's just not happening. Right? I want it to, but I don't believe it's going to. Right. And as a coach, you're like, I, I'm going to allow you to play. I mean, I kind of wish I didn't have to, but this is the rules, and so I will allow you. This is incredible. That as God is doing work among his people, that he is choosing to dwell among us, that he's building a tabernacle, forgiving sins, atoning our unrighteousness, he not only allows us reluctantly into his kingdom work, he invites us and says, I choose you. I choose you. Do you want to come? Come be a part of what I'm doing? The Lord allows us and invites us. ever heart moves him, come on and let's do this. And what's crazy about this is that God is inviting them into what he's doing by giving them an opportunity to give something to him that he has already given to them. Think about this for a second. Do you remember how slaves, how a generation of 400 years of slaves have anything valuable at all? Think about this. Enslaved for 400 years. And God is asking them to bring valuables to give to the building of the tabernacle. How would they have anything? Love this. In Genesis chapter 15, hundreds and hundreds of years before with Abraham, God tells Abraham how they're going to have anything of value. Notice this. He says, know for certain that your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs, Egypt. And when they are enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. That's interesting. Isn't it that hundreds of years before God said, listen, I'm going to give something to your descendants that they're able then to enter into this kingdom work with me. God's planning from the foundations of the world, ways to include us into his mission. So that happens. Exodus 12, we see this. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have their request, and they plundered the Egyptians. Think about how this goes. The Lord literally gives them so much favor with Egyptians. They go to their neighbors who currently hate them. They are the reason for all the plagues. And so they go to their neighbor and they say, man, I really like that that bracelet. Their Egyptian neighbor says, yes, it's been passed down to me for generations. And the Hebrew says, I'd like to have it. And they say, okay, okay. God says, I will will force favor from the Egyptians onto you so that when you walk out of Egypt, it's like you plundered them. You're having trouble carrying the possessions that I'm going to give you. Fast forward to Exodus 35, and God says, I'm building this tabernacle, and anybody who has anything of value that was given to you, If your heart moves you, then I'll use it to do what I'm doing. Are you tracking with me? It's like God is setting the people of Israel up. He's setting them up to have a part and a place in his story, in his work, in his kingdom. He's literally saying, hey, listen, I'm going to give this to you. And then in a few days, I'm going to ask for it back. And you're going to think that you did something for this tabernacle." okay I believe that this is still how the lord would have us to enter into his work you know I can imagine there were people in the group of Israel maybe maybe I, man sometimes I reveal myself too much to you guys every now and again Jan was like yeah maybe that too far I'm gonna step out on a limb. Anybody else's human nature is like, man, people whose heart wasn't moved, they were kind of lucky. They didn't the Lord didn't command them to give. And so if their hearts weren't moved, then they got to they got to keep their stuff. Like, whoa, our pastor is a selfish let you finish that, right? But I wonder how long it took them to realize that a hardened, unmoved heart is not what they're after. I wonder how long it took them to realize that I mean, it's not a good thing that my heart was not moved. Looking around and seeing their friends and family give to what the Lord had given them joyfully. And they missed out. They missed out on trusting God with what they had been given. They missed out on being a part of what God was doing. And I believe in this way, This when our hearts are moved, the Lord says this is This is a good thing. And when we we give joyously back to God what he has already given us, scripture says that this pleases God. So not only does he allow us and invite us into his working, we're then also able to please the Lord with literally the transference from his hand to ours back to his. This pleases the Lord. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, and he says this, Now say the one who sows re- sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows generously will reap generously. And each one must do as he has decided in his heart. Very familiar language, isn't it? It's Very familiar language. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God, what does it say? He loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you must have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. See, the Lord loves it when we acknowledge where anything we have has come from him in the first place and when we long to be a part of what he's doing. It's an opportunity to display our trust in. I'm not going to make this too much about giving, um, but I think that we we can't pass over this uh, to to analyze where our hearts are at. We don't talk about it a lot because we study through the the places of Scripture. When Scripture deals with giving, then we deal with giving. But this is also a place that we can't skip over. One reason that we don't just do it too much is because I, I don't, I don't love the feeling of of trying to guilt someone into giving. I think it I think it takes away and robs of this joyful and cheerful aspect of man, this is what I want to do. But there's some passage in it that I just I, I think as we look at this, there's some passages that I just can't get over. There's one really interesting passage to me that that I just saw differently this week. For the first time, I saw this passage differently. It comes from Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It says, Jesus sat down opposite of the treasury, and watch this, and began watching how the people were putting money into the treasury. This is interesting to me. That Jesus intentionally sits down Opposite of the treasury, and he starts watching how they placed it in. Not what they placed in, how they placed it. You start to see what what he's after, what he's looking for. The, the Later the story goes, the rich came with pomp and circumstance and they placed it out. It's like they, they cashed in all the dollars for change and they're like, clink, 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 clink. You know? They're making a big deal about what they're doing and what they're giving. And the widow gives just a little mite and he says, this, that's the heart that I'm looking for. That's the heart that I'm looking for. I think that Exodus paves the way as to how, from our heart, Paul adds with joy, he attaches this biblical principle that there's a correlation from what we reap to what we sow, what we've sown to what we reap. And we get to be a part. We get to be a part of not only what God is doing here at Exchange, but also all over the world. We get to be a part. Besides some of the expenses that we all share, like this building that we meet in, the kids curriculum, the staff, our office that holds all kinds of events and opportunities for discipleship, what we do here at the elementary school throughout the year, we have incredible opportunities at exchange to support with one another. We're constantly evaluating. Our elders are constantly evaluating our budget uh, to see how more uh, we can divert money and invest it into the kingdom. Over 10% of our budget here goes towards missions of some kind. We're able to support families and adoption efforts. We're able to support our church partner in Costa Rica, build a house this summer in a community and partner with them in training and elder training. We built a bathroom this year for them. Uh, we're able to support them in marriage ministry. We're able to support church planting and missions in Austin, Texas through our partnership with the Reynolds uh, that we sent out. We're able to partner with the counseling ministry designed to keep missionaries on the field. We're partnering with the Southern Baptist Convention to pay the salaries of thousands of missionaries all around the world. And we're absolutely flo- Lord, that the Lord would use our little church in Rollsville, use us here to partner with him in things like this, that we get to be a part. We've said it many times before, though, and we understand there are reasons why. Maybe you've been a part of a ministry. You've had a bad experience. Maybe there's reasons why that you're hesitant to be a part. I would say our, our elders, are very gracious and kind and understand that and would be glad to sit down with you and say, can, can we help you? We would hate for you to miss out on the blessing of what God is doing because maybe you don't trust us. Maybe you haven't learned to trust us. Maybe you've had a really bad experience. Maybe you've seen finances totally mishandled, maybe in a church that you are part of or on the news somewhere or something like that. And you think, I don't know if I can, we don't want you to miss out on a blessing of what God's doing because of that. We would love to sit down with you without pressure. So how, how do we help you trust us in exchange? I think the question that this, that this text forces us to ask is what? What do you hold on to that he has already given? What are you holding on to that he's already given? Maybe it's your time, Sabbath. God, I just need one more day. I need, how many of us have said this? I need five more hours of my day. I I need one more day of the week. Do you trust him with the time that he's given? you trust him with the gifts that he's given? We have this, um, Daniel's coming can, coming to uh, lead us in response. We have this uh, famous home video in our family. Um, it's, uh, it's Avon is probably two years old. So, you know, little Avon here. And she is, we've got her on a couch and we've got one of those, I think it's like a nursing pillow or something like that. It's the big C you know, like, and we've got it kind of around her like this. And one of our friends had just had a baby. And so as Avon is two, uh, barely two, I think, we we hand her, she wants to hold this baby. And so we give her this baby to hold, right? And so she's holding the baby and uh, we go, I think Jana is saying like, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to feed the baby now. And in two-year-old Avon language, she goes, no, 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 mine did it. Mine did it. You know. And is like, no, I'm gonna, f- I'm gonna take the baby in a feed No, 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 mine did it. Mine did it. She just looks, as like, you're not taking this baby away from me. It's pretty cute. I was reminded about that this week. Because the absurdity and the cuteness of that video, the absurdity of she can do nothing for that baby. If we were to say, okay, you did it. You do it. That, that baby would die. We gave her the baby for a second. <laughs> said we will let you joy this good gift. And then we will take it and do something with it and grow it up strong. And for many of us, Today, there are things in our life we're saying, no, 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 no. Minded. Mind what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to that the Lord is inviting you not to give him? What are you holding on to that the Lord is inviting you? Give Him.